Well, let's pray. Well, Father, we are so thankful that we can gather here uh, together as a redeemed people who have been transformed uh, by you. We thank you so much for the hope that we have in the gospel, the hope of new life, the hope of a resurrection, the hope of seeing departed loved ones again, the hope of, of holiness that you have given to us. I pray that as I preach this message, this will be a, a deep challenge to those who need to be challenged and an encouragement to those who need to persevere. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you had a, a typical American congregation who was looking for a pastor, the job description or what they're looking for uh, would look something like this. They look for a pastor who shows the ability to culturally adapt to their surroundings and speak the language of the people, someone who leads with confidence and can inspire people, is a self-starter with an entrepreneurial spirit, can passionately communicate, teach, and cast vision, can develop leaders, is innovative and creative, a skilled administrator, somebody with a pastoral manner who can relate well to people, someone who could teach doctrine and teach the Bible, and someone who can match wits with those opponents of the gospel. Now, what's missing from that job description? Right, as you can probably guess by peeking at the title of my message, a commitment to personal holiness. That the most important attribute of anyone who wants to be a minister or a leader or somebody who is useful to the service of the kingdom is character. Character is king. Holiness matters. And that's the argument that Paul is making in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, in the context... Paul is trying to steer away Timothy and the rest of the church uh, from some damaging doctrine that's taught by Hymenaeus and Philetus. And he reminds them that those who are truly called of the Lord will separate themselves from false teachers and their teaching. Verse 19 previously says, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are His, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, right? There is a, a call to be holy. Now, holy is one of those Christian words that you hear quite a bit, and, and many people don't quite know what it means. It, it basically means to be set apart. That something is set apart, it is differentiated. And in this case, God is set apart from the rest of his creation. There's no one like him. He is perfect in every way, unlike his creation. He possesses certain wonderful, marvelous attributes that only he possesses. But there's another sense where there is a call for personal holiness, where we're to be like him, love like he loves, pursue righteousness and justice like he pursues it, to be free from moral stain and imperfection. 
That is the, the calling of God who expects us to be holy because He is holy. To be perfect as He is, is perfect. And something that's kind of interesting in the church right now is there's been a, in my opinion, and it's an opinion shared by others, a de-emphasis on personal holiness. That many churches view somebody who's committed to personal holiness as a relational killjoy. They're the people that you don't invite to the party. right? You might even think that they're internally Amish. And many people would rather have a, a pastor who enjoys craft beers, is familiar with pop culture, and has occasional light profanity, as opposed to a teetotaling, straight-laced pastor who has never seen The Bachelorette. There is a, a, a desire to have a pastor who can really relate to the people. And many want to grow the church and they want to bring people into the church that are relatable. And so holiness is just becoming a diet version of the world and try to incrementally baby step people into uh, a relationship with the holy God. But God's calling on, on pastors and ministers and really all Christians is that you are to be holy as he is holy. Holiness should not be an embarrassment to the body of Christ. It is our calling. And as we are going to see, character is king, that holiness matters. It is the most important attribute for a minister of the gospel. And I think a rash of pastor fails that we have been witnessing as a church is a reminder that for the church to grow and thrive, there has to be a return to a commitment for everybody, including the pastor and the leaders, to personal holiness. Holiness matters. And as we go through this passage, we're going to see the options for holiness, the choice of holiness, and the results of holiness. And, and really my goal is that all of us walk away with a real vision for why God wants you to be holy. So let's look at the options for holiness. Verse 20. Now, in a great house... There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. So Paul is setting the stage. He's talking about a, a great house. We're talking about the, not like a little tiny domicile, but like one of the estates with, with servants, where the person is a, who owns it is a man or woman of means. And they would have honorable vessels silverware that's made of silver, golden goblets, golden platters, silver platters. It's the type of stuff that if you're not actually using it, you are displaying it so that everybody could admire your wealth and see all the, the wonderful luxuries that you have. They are an adornment that, that kind of makes it very clear that the owner of the house is a very important person, right? So they have the honorable vessels, and then you have the dishonorable vessels made of wood and clay. This would be the chamber pot that's disposed with the waste. The kids don't know what a chamber pot is. Ask your parents. I don't need unnecessary giggling during the sermon. But you look at it like we do have different vessels, don't we? If Bill Self were to come over to the Hintz household, 
We're not going to serve him burgers on Chinette. We'll bring out the Lennox China, which we've used one time in our marriage, because this is a special occasion, right? You want to honor the guests by using an honorable vessel and honorable plates. And so what Paul is doing is he's basically giving a picture of two types of vessels, the honorable and the dishonorable. Now, some uh, commentators kind of make a big deal about, well, does the great house stand for the church or the world? Uh, Are the honorable vessels, are those Christians or teachers and dishonorable uh, vessels? Are those the, um, maybe the false teachers or people in the world? Well, the point of the analogy is not the analogy. The point of the analogy is to basically set the table, so to speak, for the next part that there are two types of vessels, honorable and dishonorable, and that every person needs to make a choice regarding what kind of vessel you want to be. The choice is available in verse 21. Therefore, if anyone, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, right? This is a choice that's made to, to everyone. Now, when you hear about honorable vessels and dishonorable vessels, there, there's another passage where the same language is used. Romans 9.21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now, in that case, the, the potter determines if it's honorable or dishonorable, right? But in this case, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, this is a case where the pot decides what kind of vessel I want to be. Uh, this is really a, a calling for Christians to make the choice to be sanctified. Sanctified is another fancy word for to become holy, uh, to be cleansed of the moral filth of sin. In this case, cleanse talks about ritual purity, being dedicated, consecrated to the Lord's work. Right? This is an appeal to the false teachers, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who were probably once part of the church, to, to basically cleanse themselves of that false doctrine. It's a call to, to Timothy, who is, who is to be told later on, flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Right? It's a call to pursue personal holiness. Now, to be personally holy, there is a necessary step. You have to be a born-again believer who's been given the holiness of God. Now remember, the Bible says, you shall be holy for I am holy, 1 Peter 1.16. Right? You need to be morally perfect as the Lord is morally perfect. Now, deep down, let's be honest, right? none of you, none of us are there. If all of our thoughts were projected onto that screen, in perfect detail for the last 24 hours, we would be mortified, wouldn't we? Right? We would be embarrassed by our own thoughts because deep down we know that we don't even match our own standards for right and wrong, much less God's standards. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have been unholy. And so it's impossible for something that is unholy to make themselves holy. Does that make sense? It's like trying to clean a dirty kitchen floor with a rag that's soaked in tar. You're just going to make a bigger mess. What has to happen is some sort of external cleansing. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. When he died on the cross, he died the death that we 
deserve to die. For he gave us our sins and gave us a righteousness not of our own. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is a gift of God, that God will make those who believe in him, he'll actually take your sin, put it on the cross, give Jesus' righteousness to you, so that you can be holy before him. And this is nothing that anybody does, you can't work your way into it, it's a gift, according to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result, so that no one may boast. You become justified. Justified is basically trying to prove that you are righteous, right? If you are late for a meeting or you do something, let's say you snap at your kids, you might want to justify yourself by saying, I, I was hungry, I had a tough day, I didn't get enough sleep, Right? We try to justify ourselves to try to lessen the guilt by making excuses. But when God justifies you for your sin, he basically excuses you of all your sin. It's on the cross. It's been dealt with. I declare you right now justified. That's why when a, a Christian dies, we have immediate assurance that we are going to heaven right away. There, there's no purging required. There's no purgatory that you have to endure. When somebody believes at that moment, they are justified before the Lord, completely, totally saved. But that's not the only benefit of salvation. We read in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're sanctified, you're set apart to God, you are declared a saint. Being a saint is not something where you have to do two miracles and then be deemed a saint by the Catholic Church later on. Being a saint is an instantaneous reality that when you come to faith, Jesus' righteousness is applied to you, and as far as how God regards you, he sees you as perfect on account of the work of Christ. You are a saint. This is what we call positional holiness. All of us are saints instantaneously. Okay, that's one clear category. Now, there's some other benefits. We read in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And Romans 6, 2, How can we who died to sin still live in it? So while you are a, a, a saint, you're also a new creation. Something transformed you. Something happened to you. You are as different from who you used to be as a butterfly is as different from a caterpillar. There was a metamorphosis that took place. I, I remember as a, as a non-Christian, I, I, I didn't mind sin as long as it didn't caught or paid any consequences. It was, sun, it was fun. It was thrilling. Uh, it was something that I enjoyed and the prospect of going to a Bible study and praying on a Friday night, well, that just didn't sound too cool. But as a believer, I had a new outlook on reading the Bible, a new outlook on prayer, even a new outlook on, on sin. Sin was not some sort of dalliance to kind of whet my appetite, something that I enjoyed. I saw sin as something that put my first love, Jesus Christ, on the cross. 
is something that grieves the Holy Spirit. It's rebellion against my, my father. There is a different disposition that I have towards sin. And even though I'm not fighting my sin to earn my way to heaven, that was already established, I understood that, that sin still had some influence on my life. In fact, in, in <clears throat> Colossians chapter 3, Paul says something really interesting. After, after detailing the reality of sexual sin, he says in 3.7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. He says, Colossians, at one point in time, this is how you used to walk. But now, verse 8, you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouths. See, there, there's an understanding that they were still struggling with the sins of the tongue and the sins of anger. So even though they were dead to the power of sin, they were still under the influence of some sin. One of the uh, analogies I like to, to point to is, you guys know the story of Joshua, right? Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land. He was to defeat all of these Canaanite tribes and all their false religions and take the land that was promised to them. And so they go in there and they conquer and they have victory, right? Nobody can stop them. But it's also told that they need to keep on conquering lest some of these residual tribes in there raise themselves up and influence them to rebel against the Lord. So you as a Christian, when you become a Christian, sin has been conquered. You don't have to sin anymore. You're no longer its slave. It doesn't have power over you, but sin can still influence you. Your part of your salvation is that you have been delivered from the power and the bondage of sin. And so that's why Paul will say in Philippians 2, chapter 12, or chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He does not say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. If you've been saved from the power of sin, keep on being saved from the power of sin. And this is not something that you do on your own. He says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he gives you the desire and he gives you the power. You have the Holy Spirit in you that allows you to keep on conquering sin. So even though we are positionally sanctified, there is a progression, a progressive sanctification where we keep on fighting sin until the day we die. Think about Brian Long last Wednesday, right? When he saw Jesus face to face, his progressive sanctification was complete. His position matched his reality as he was completely transformed and changed. And, and that is what we are called to do, is to keep on progressing until we see the Lord face to face. One of the reasons why we want holiness now is because holiness is one of the perks of heaven. You'll be free from your sin. You won't have those bitter thoughts anymore. You won't be stricken in your conscience because of your selfishness. You'll be able to worship the Lord completely, and so the heart of a Christian is to be holy to get an early start. 
And really the power that saved us is the power that continues to transform us. In Titus 2, 11 through 12, for it is the grace of God, for the grace of God has appeared to you, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You see, he wants you to be godly. God wants you to be holy. So what, I mean, what does this look like? What does this look like? Well, let me tell you what it's not. Uh, Being holy is not necessarily just being really spiritual. It's not just, you know, I just spoke to the Lord today and the Lord was just speaking to me. You just raise your hands in prayer. You, You practice centering prayer. You take retreats with Jesus. I mean, that's not holiness. That's acting spiritual. And sometimes people can use that type of behavior to disguise unholiness. It's not just being nice. You know, he's a good old boy, nicest guy, give you the shirt off his back. That's not necessarily holiness. All that can be done just to please people, not the Lord. Holiness is not being a, um, a diet version of the world. Yeah, I'm edgy and stuff like that, but instead of having a skull tattoo, I have a Hebrew tattoo. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not being a diet version of the world. To be holy is really about what you love. It's about what you love. You love Jesus. You love those who love Jesus. And you hate the things that grieve Jesus. And what grieves Jesus? Sin. Rebellion. That is why somebody who is holy is focused on love. John 13, 34 a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. I mean, holiness is not reduced to don't smoke, don't chew, don't drink, and don't go out with girls who do. It, it, it's more than that, right? It's about loving as you have been loved. It's about loving as Jesus has loved you. It also involves offering your lives and offering your body to Jesus Christ. Colossians, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.20 For you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Right? God has purchased you, Christian. Your body does not belong to you to do what you want. It belongs to the Lord. And that's why sexual purity in all forms, with your thoughts, with the media intake, with your behavior and relationships, all that is because you have been purchased to be holy in your sexual contact. You see, in uh, holiness is about uh, cultivating a clear conscience, right? That mental alarm system that we have. Paul testifies in Acts 24, 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience both towards God and man. You're to have a clear conscience. I mean, sometimes you're doing things and you hear that, eh, 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 eh. That means you don't do it. You don't do it. Should I watch this movie? Eh, 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 eh. Better not. Now, sometimes that can go off. Let's say you grew up in a, in a Jewish household, you were taught that eating bacon is sin, and somebody offers you some bacon, and you say, eh, eh, eh. well, don't eat the bacon, but go back and read the Bible and realize that you have freedom in Christ to do so. But then there's other times where people lie so much, they exaggerate, they embellish, they ignore the, eh, 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 and it just gets softer. Well, in that case, you need to rediscover what it means to obey the word of God 
to calibrate your conscience so that you have a quick alarm system that stops you before you do something that leads to unholy behavior. And then finally, holiness is just straight out obeying God's commands. It's interesting that after he does this, we see after he gives these commands to, be a, uh, to cleanse yourself, he says in 2.22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. I mean, there's, a, there's commands that you are to obey as a Christian. They are not suggestions. They're not optional. It's the will of God. And ultimately, the will of God is your personal and the church's corporate holiness. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. He who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You are holy. All he's asking you to do is be who you are, to put on the new man, to strip off the old man, to, to break those habits that often have a grip on you, to, to practice the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, uh, to deal with sin as you see it. If you find yourself dealing with anxiety or anger, you, you recognize it for what it is. You search it out and you think, how can I be sanctified in this area? If you're struggling with, with just selfishness in general, you intentionally choose to put on the, the new man and be selfless. If you're struggling with purity, you, you seek help and you, you try to regard the opposite sex as brothers or, or sisters, depending on your gender. Right? Holiness is a lifelong pursuit and it's the desire and drive of a Christian because we love Jesus and we hate what put him on the cross. We love Jesus and we know that he's going to create a world without sin and we long for that world right now and God has given us all the resources, the word of God, the Holy Spirit, the corporate church, so that you can be free from that sin and drive it out. And incidentally, this is why some Christians are holier than others. I'm not saying that some Christians are more saved than others. All of you are exactly positionally holy. But there is a case where some have progressed in holiness more than others because they have worked harder at holiness. And so you have to think to yourself, what is holding me back from working hard at holiness? I think part of it is you need to have a vision for holiness. What will this holiness lead to? What will be the results? Look at verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Right? A Christian continually chooses holiness. I think about that great hymn, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Right? Where the desire of a Christian who's been redeemed, who's been purchased by their Lord, is like, Lord, my life doesn't belong to me anymore. You take it. You consecrate it. And you use it. And frankly, God uses holy lives. Those are the instruments that are useful to him. And so, when he says, 
he will be a vessel for honorable use is modified by, by three phrases. Number one, it's set apart as holy. Set apart as holy. You, you think about the, the temple in the Old Testament. They quarried the stones, they laid the foundation, they erected the walls, they, they decorated it with wood carvings, uh, with statues of cherubim, they encrusted it and plated it with gold, they put in all the temple furniture. But you know what? That was just a building until it was consecrated. And once that building was consecrated, it was occupied by the Lord and useful for its intended purpose. When you become holy, you become useful. The Lord can occupy you and use you to accomplish His holy purpose. You're useful to the master of the house. That's also in verse 21. Right, you go to a restaurant, let's say you hit Casa Ramos afterwards, and they uh, bring out the silverware and the fork, and you notice that your fork had crusted food on it. Your, your cup has lipstick on it. And you're a man, work with me here, okay? <laughs> right, that is not cleansed, it's not holy. That cup and that fork should be taken out of service. You see, when somebody is unholy, they're not useful to the master. In fact, you're even wondering, are they even working for the master? What would drive somebody who is unholy, who's tolerating rebellion in their life to try to serve the Lord? Ultimately, the mixed motivations means that it's probably to serve themselves. Thirdly, you're also, if you're holy, if you're set apart for honorable use, you're ready for every good work. Now, you've been saved for good works. And what are these good works? What's the, the drive and the passion of any minister or any servant of the king? Colossians 1, 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, to present everyone mature in Christ is to do what? It's to make them like Christ. You should present people as holy. So how can you lead the way to holiness if you're not holy yourself, right? That's why a personal commitment to personal holiness is essential to have an effective ministry. And that's why the de-emphasis on personal holiness is uh, really tragic. I know some of you, including myself, were listening to a podcast about the destruction of a megachurch in Seattle. And what's really interesting as you read about this ministry that was planting churches, building church planting organizations that just spread like wildfire is is the unholiness of the pastor was, was tolerated. It was tolerated because they thought, well, good things are happening, numbers are increasing. And I think it kind of fed a, a narrative where personal holiness is almost seen as a liability to ministry. Now, people will still say, you know, it needs to be godly, needs to be like Christ. They'll say it because you need to say it. But the real passion and conviction to say personal holiness matters I, I think has waned for a number of reasons, and I, I came up with 10. Thing number one, we don't want people to feel bad for their failures, right? The purpose of the church is to be therapeutic, to help people to feel good about themselves. And so if a pastor gets up and he talks about the importance of, 
of waiting till marriage to be sexually intimate. There would be a fear that they would make people feel bad in the congregation. And so that therapeutic nature, helping people to feel good, might cause them to tone down some of the high callings of holiness from the pulpit. Think secondly, uh, people fear legalism, right? Allegedly, there's this legalistic boogeyman that's trying to turn everybody into a, a Pharisee. And if you tell somebody this is what the Bible says and you expect obedience, you're accused of being a legalist. It's almost as if they're so focused on the gospel that there's no place for expressing your love and affection for the Lord through your works. Thirdly, the world equates holiness with judgmentalism. You have a holier-than-thou attitude. So if you call people to be holy, you say some people are holier than others, you're just building a church of Pharisees, you're being censorious and judgmental. And by the way, if you're being censorious and judgmental, that's not biblical holiness. That's a counterfeit. Fourth, they want to emphasize the gospel. You want to focus on the indicatives, not the imperatives. You want to make sure that people get the gospel right and the passion for the gospel is where it all begins. And, and I agree. I agree, absolutely. Emphasize the gospel, but part of the gospel is deliverance from sin. Fifth, there's a desire to be culturally relevant. That if you're going to reach people and bring people into your church, you can't be unrelatable. Six, there's a belief that holiness is unattainable or perhaps impossible. That if you really understand the majesty and the glory of Christ, you'll see how far he is above you and the gap between him and you is impossible. It's impossible to be holy, so don't even try. Let go and let God. Don't work for it. It has to be an act of passive faith. Seventh, there's a perception that holiness is joyless. It's all about what you can't do. It's about the movie you can't watch. It's about not going to that party. Eighth, holiness requires constant self-denial. Forming a righteous habit takes sustained effort and an office is inconvenient. If you have an internet filter, because you want to protect your eyes, sometimes it's like, man, I can't get... ESPN's down again. What's going on? Or perhaps you have strong dating convictions, and it's like, man, I have to end my, my evening early with my girlfriend. Man, that stinks. It's inconvenient. Ninth, holiness makes us unrelatable to certain people in our lives. If somebody is married to an unbeliever and they become holier and holier and holier, while the unbeliever stays the same, there's going to be a greater chasm between the two. You, you, you might find that a pursuit of holiness might make you more unlike your friends and they don't want to be around you. Perhaps you want to be popular and fit in with the football team. Holiness can get in the way. And finally, um, holiness is hard to quantify or measure, right? 
You can, to a certain extent, measure the amount of Bible doctrine that you know. You can measure how many people are coming to your Bible study. But when you pursue holiness, it's almost like you're going backwards, right? The more you're growing, the more you realize, I have a lot more to go. The more you see Jesus, the more sinful you feel. And so you can get frustrated in the effort. Now, there's some other reasons, but, but I think holiness is on the wane. And one of the areas I see it is there's been widespread mockery and ridicule of what's called purity culture. Right back in the 90s and the, is it the aughts when it's just the zeros? Okay, still can't quite get used to that. Now, there was a real movement towards true love waits, the importance of, of waiting till marriage to, to have sex. And there were books about it. Uh, there were conferences dedicated to it. Multiple songs were sung about it. And now it's really derided as this legalistic counterfeit. And, and there were obvious criticisms, right? It, it focused on behavior, not the gospel. It made that the only issue that teenagers ever struggle with. I, I get all of that. But the way you hear a lot of ex-Christians talk, they, they, they talk about how they were traumatized because some youth counselor told them to wear a one-piece bathing suit. You know, they bring up all the body shaming and all this other stuff, and you just kind of get the sense that these people are resentful because they wanted to have more sex. There's not a, there's not a sense that pursuing sexual purity takes sustained effort. It takes a real commitment. And now it's being ridiculed and, and it's hard to bring up even that topic without people looking the other way like you're some sort of puritanical purity legalist. But what's lost is there is a call to personal holiness. So, so why, why should you pursue holiness? Well, obviously it honors the king. It honors the king and that should be reason enough. But it also makes you useful to the king. And, and I want to give you 11 reasons why. I gave you 10 reasons why people deter from it. I want to do one better than that when I give you the positive, okay? Number one, a holy life tells the world that God can actually change people. A holy life tells the world that God can actually change people. One of the great passages in Scripture is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God actually changes people. A holy life is proof. Secondly, holiness, holiness intrigues people. Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, this past week, the Milwaukee Bucks defeated the Phoenix Suns in the NBA Finals. And after the game, the coach of the Phoenix Suns, Monty Williams, went into the Bucks locker room and told them, you guys deserved it. 
I'm thankful for the experience. You made us a better team and made me a better coach. And he meant it. But Monty Williams had another remarkable thing that distinguished him. About five years ago, his wife of 20 years, Ingrid, was driving on a highway and a car crossed the medium and hit his wife head on, killed the driver and killed his wife. And at her funeral, he said this. He thanked everyone for praying for his family, but he said, you need to pray for the driver's family. The family needs prayer as well. We have no ill will towards that family. In my house, we have a sign that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We cannot serve the Lord if we don't have a heart of forgiveness. That family didn't wake up wanting to hurt my wife. Life is hard. It is very hard. And that was tough. But we hold no ill will for the Donaldson family. Monty Williams, as he picked it up, is a committed Christian. And everyone sees his behavior of praying for his enemies, showing class in the locker room. And there's this widespread admiration where they're thinking, what makes this guy so different? See, holiness intrigues. It doesn't intrigue everyone. Often, um, it doesn't lead to admiration. Holiness exposes sin. John 3.20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Right? When you're a faithful Christian, you are a living indictment. You prick consciences. You remind them that what you're doing is wrong. That's why those of you who are going off to college, there will be a crusade to get you to party, to get you to drink, to give your friends permission to do the same thing. As long as you abstain from that, you are a living indictment that they're not doing what they should. Holiness, number four, is a guidepost to others. When you live a holy life, you're an example. Some of you young people might look to a man or a woman who's living a holy life, and it gives you a trajectory of what it looks like to walk with the Lord. Fifth, holiness preserves a ministry. You might have known of Ravi Zacharias, a world-famous apologist, international speaker, somebody who... Uh, I have heard many sermons. I appreciated what he did, had many books. But after his death, it came out that he was a deeply, deeply, deeply immoral man who was a fraud. His sin found him out, and everything that he did crumbled. If you want to protect your ministry, you live a holy life. Six, holiness harnesses the power of God. Why would God bless your ministry if you're opposed to him? 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. If the point of ministry is give God glory, then you need to do it in your life. Seventh, holiness builds the community of faith. Galatians 5, 13 through 15, for you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. A holy people get along because they love as Christ loved them. Eight, holiness is a family resemblance. People might look at my children, and say, oh, they look like their mother, or oh, they look like their father. 
When people look at the body of Christ, they'd say, wow, you guys look like Jesus. Nine, holiness protects from sin and temptation. If you are consistently attacking sin and weakening its influence and its hold on you, it will perpetuate, it'll be easier to defeat more and more sin. Ten, holiness begets a godly generation. If the parents have one foot in the world, you can count on the children having two feet in the world. If the parents are committed to holiness, the children will learn by example. And then 11, holiness brings joy. Holy people are happy people. Holy people are happy people. Oh, well, how is that? Well, how many people who are enslaved to bitterness and unforgiveness do you know are happy? How about that man who is hooked on pornography? Is he happy? You see, it's a freedom that the Lord gives you. John 15, 10 through 11, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, right? That's a call to holiness. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, holiness ultimately gives joy and He gives other people joy as well. I love reading uh, Christian biographies and one of my favorite is, by, is about a man by the name of R.C.C. Chapman. He was an English minister in the 19th century. He was regarded by Charles Spurgeon, one of the most famous preachers of all time, as the most saintliest person I ever knew. In other words, he was the holiest person he ever knew. Now, what's interesting is, is Chapman uh, came to faith late in his teens. He came from a very wealthy family and wanted to be a lawyer and was practicing law for a while until he took a call to pastor a troubled church. And in his ministry, he began to discern that he was not God's gift to preaching. In fact, if you read his sermons, I mean, they're biblical, they're good, they're not outstanding, and he knew that. And so he resolved that if he can't be the best preacher of Christ, he'll seek to be the best liver of Christ. he seek to live Christ excellently. And that is what he was driven to do. And so when you read his biography, there's all these stories of his holy behavior and his impact on others. And and this is my favorite. He had a wealthy relative visit him one day. And this wealthy relative was so moved by the simplicity of his life that he insisted that he buy him groceries. And so Chapman said, okay, under one condition. You need to go to this specific grocer. Now, this grocer was openly hostile to Chapman. Would attack him, try to spit on him. I mean, it was unreal the type of opposition he gave to Chapman. So this wealthy relative who didn't know anything about this agreed, walked into the store and bought a lot of groceries. And as the grocer is happily bagging and boxing all of the groceries, uh, the relative said, I want you to deliver this to RCC Chapman and gave the address. And the grocer said, RCC Chapman? Yes. You must have made a mistake. You must have gone to the wrong store. No, actually, he specifically said to come to this store. Gave me the address and used you by name. He wanted you to do it. And so the grocer 
said, okay, took the money, then took the groceries to RCC Chapman and in tears confessed his sin and confessed Christ. You see, that wasn't necessarily through a sermon, although he heard the gospel. But you saw how a holy life and a change within Chapman and the holy character was used to make an unclean man holy. If you want to be useful to the Lord, you need to pursue holiness. Holiness matters. Let's pray. Well, Father, I'm so grateful for this flock, and I thank you that so many of them desire to be holy. And I pray that this will encourage them in that end. But for those who have tolerated a degree of unholiness in their life, I I pray that this message will move them to address it head on, that they will have a longing to be holy as you are holy. We thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen.